I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending April 24th. In this episode, a new company called Kiavi has just devised an entirely new approach to data security, and it is devilishly clever. Instead of securing the system the data is on, what if you could build the security into the data itself? You could then even specify when, where, and how your data could be accessed. We've got Kiavi's CEO, Elliot Lewis, on the show this week. Also, the U.S. is talking about bringing back manufacturing. We talk with Dan Bresnitz, an expert on international manufacturing, about whether that's feasible. If you know the fable of a frog that was put in a pot of water and then slowly, slowly, slowly the water were boiled and the frog doesn't understand them and end up being dead and well cooked. That's exactly what happened to the American economy. And what happened with COVID now is suddenly we realize that we find it difficult to produce basic critical necessities. Okay, spoiler alert. Bresnit says that bringing back manufacturing in the U.S. is feasible. It just won't be easy. Stay tuned. We'll get back to that in a moment. An oxymoron is a phrase that seems to have an internal contradiction. Examples include tight slacks, act naturally, and jumbo shrimp. You might be forgiven for thinking that the phrase data security is another oxymoron. Decades after cybercrime was identified as a persistent and growing problem, there are still few penalties for companies or government agencies that leave themselves exposed to data breaches. Since there are few consequences for data breaches, too many organizations fail to make data security a priority. The electronics industry has responded to this disinclination by some to adopt even the simplest of safety precautions by devising methods to automatically protect data everywhere, from individual computer chips up to entire data communications networks. What almost all of these methods have in common is that they try to protect the systems from being hacked so that the data is never threatened. There are hardware-based techniques and software methods and combinations of both, but after they're deployed, someone almost invariably finds some inherent flaw in them. If that doesn't happen, technology advances often create new conditions that the developers of the security measures never anticipated and didn't cover. A startup called Kiavi is taking a different approach, however, that would avoid all of that. Kiavi CEO Elliot Lewis has an impeccable pedigree in the security industry. He was chief security architect at Microsoft, and before that held similar titles at both Dell and Merrill Lynch. There's been a security concept percolating within the industry for years. It's this. Data itself has to protect itself. And Kiavi says it's figured out a way to do it. International editor Junko Yoshida recently got on the phone with Lewis to ask him about what security measures are available today, how Kiavi's approach differs, and what that means for securing data. As a reporter, um, you talk to a vendor, vendor tells you how they secure your data at network level or storage level or endpoint 
or chip level even, right? So it feels like everything is sort of like a whack-a-mole game, right? You, 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 you secured here, you secure there, you secure this again, but I don't really get the whole story. So I'm here with you to ask the fundamental questions. How Kiavi Data's approach to data security is different from the traditional so-called data security approach? That's a great question. And this comes off of exactly how we went about designing Kiavi Data's architecture and how we went designing the uh, parameters for it. What do you have to look at here? And this comes down to when we started looking at the problem. The issue with data protection is that IT is constantly evolving across all different issues, all different operations, all different controls. You constantly have different platforms, <laughs> different kinds of operating systems, right. different kinds of devices, different kinds of uh, storage, different kinds of transports. It IT evolves on an average of six to nine months. Wow! And when and then when you look at that situation, the security tools that have to secure those evolutionary steps are lagging because until they know what that evolution looks like, oh. they don't know how to protect it. So you have IT that evolves every six to nine months on average with new tools, platforms, capabilities, new phones, new tablets, new PCs, new capabilities. And then you have security uh, solutions that have to lag that because they don't know how to protect it until it's actually on the market. And so now you have this window of exposure that is constantly happening in the, in the IT world. There's only two common denominators that stay consistent throughout this entire evolutionary cycle, and that's data and the people that use and create that data. <laughs> everything else, <Right. laughs> everything else evolves around it at a constant pace. So, and so we realized that until we put the security into data itself and made data the center point of self-aware, intelligent, and self-protecting on its own, without reliances on different devices, different controls, different platforms, different storage, until data itself, the one common denominator, was able to protect itself, we weren't going to solve this problem. And that is why Kiavi Data put their model and designed their technology to build into data itself all this capability. Gotcha. So that's that's the difference. Yeah. And you're, you're asking all the right questions because in the security world, it's never one solution fits all. Yeah. yeah. It's always, there's always layers of security. But at the end of the day, until we made data intelligent and made data self-protecting, all of this was always trying to catch after that evolutionary step. Got it. So, but here's the, the you know, 64 million or probably billion dollar question here is that how do you make data intelligent? You know, you I, I totally get the thesis here that you put security in data, not around data. But how do you do that? So I've been working on this problem for many years. I've been so this is a culmination of 25 years in cybersecurity, going from Microsoft to uh, working in financial services back into Cisco and then being at Dell, and we've seen all kinds of solutions and controls and places to put all these policies, pulled all these architectures, put all these checkpoints and choke points and capabilities into cybersecurity. What we do with Kiavi is we've taken 
all of industry standard models. So when we use encryption, we're using the standards of AES and uh, FIPS 140 certification levels. We're using the strongest levels. But what we've done is we've taken a different kind of model. Yeah. We've incorporated multiple layers of encryption around the technology that allows different levels of access to controls, to policies, to microdatabasing and intelligence models. Now, when we say microdatabasing, people will look at that and they say, well, what is? what do you mean by a microdatabase? Exactly. Yeah. This is technology we've actually invented at Kiavi that we use to now embed complex policy structures into the layers of encryption oh. capability. Okay. And so when you um, access a piece of Kiavi data, mm-hmm. the first thing that happens is it's going to say, are you even authorized and allowed to look at the policy that I, that belongs to me, right? And if you're not in, if you're in the wrong house, or if you're in the wrong country, or if you're in the wrong space, or you're out of the office, the data says we're stopping cold right here. We shouldn't be here. Then it says, are you the right person, right? Yep. And then if you're an authorized user, now we start unlocking more keys of structure for encryption, and embedded within that, in the multiple keys, with no single key controlling it all. You now get access to this rich policy that's embedded in every piece of data. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so now the data, when you ask how can data be intelligent, it knows where it should be mm-hmm. or it knows where it shouldn't be. It knows who's allowed to authorize to use it on what devices and what systems. All of that's embedded in multiple layers of heuristics it can take into account because it has all that embedded into the encryption multi-key algorithmic architecture we've applied around data. Now, the key here is we had to make this so that it worked on all platforms, it worked on all systems, um, it also had to use industry standards and be future-proofed. Mm. So when we see things like new kinds of encryption come out or new kinds of, uh, of, uh, of uh, key management come out, that we're able to adopt them and use them. So we made the architecture work that way from inception. And... Um, it had to be applicable across all operations. Hmm. So so as an example, what this does is, let me give you a great use case example sure. that we have right now with, uh, the, with, the, uh, with the COVID virus out there. Companies had to send their entire workforce home, right? So what was the requirements to make a remote workforce solution happen? Any device, any ownership, mm-hmm. any network, any kind of internet access at any time, and it all had to be agnostic. So how does a company control all of that? Well, they can't. They can't control it on platform, they can't control it on devices, they can't control it on a network. So what does it come down to? The data itself needs to know, I'm allowed to be at this house, or at these right. offices, or of these homes, and I need to know I'm allowed to be on these devices, and they don't have to be corporate controlled because it's at the data level, Right, and all this becomes agnostic. So now we have a complete workforce solution, without having to deploy all kinds of tools and models and secondary systems and tricks to make that secure. It all happens at the data level, and we also did this so that it's all built into Office, mm-hmm. right? Microsoft so that, Office, right? 
Okay. Yeah, you load you load up one simple thing, the Kiavi uh, agent for whatever op- uh, operating system you're on, whether it's Mac or Windows or whatever, and you and then it plugs right into Office, and you're back to work. Oh. And but now all your data is self intelligent and self aware and geofenced to your homes and to the offices that you're supposed to be in, and your corporation is able to manage all this even if they're at home, because it's all portal-based in a secure way for them to see where all the data and forensics are going. And everybody sees it happening seamlessly, and they can use whatever device and whatever they want to use. That was all part of the original design parameters about how to make data the center point of its own security, and also allow data to be able to be controlled even after you sent it out, yep. even after it's been taken out of your control, you still control your data no matter where it went, no matter how far it went. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually uh, both uh, convenient, but also a little bit scary. But before we get, get to that, Elliot, let me ask you this. You didn't invent this technology knowing that COVID-19 is coming, right? Absolutely not. No, no, we've been... <laughs> We've been working on this for a number of years yeah, now, yeah. Uh, and my team has, has uh, come out with the latest version just now, and it's absolutely uh, put together with all these capabilities and forensics and analytics. The intent was never in anticipation of of a pandemic happening, yeah. right? Yeah. This was always in anticipation of the evolution, the constant evolution of IT, the constant headlines we've seen every day long before COVID was ever uttered of system loss, data loss, data exfiltration, you know, uh, personal identity loss. Sure. All these have been going on constantly. Yeah. That's what this was designed around. So, so yeah, I know you can't tell us uh, the, you, you can't name names of your customers, but my understanding is that the, um, that people or the companies in different industries actually have been in beta testing. Can you tell me which kind of interest industries are looking at this and why are they interested in it? Absolutely. So, when you look at the different ways this can be applied, and we actually designed the entire architecture, so not only can you work on it um, with our core applications like uh, like Office and everything else, but it's also designed as an API architecture at inception. Yeah. So you could write any application, this, any platform, any operating system. When we look at different use cases, let me describe some use cases to you. Yeah. Um, you have one where... Um, First of all, the first and foremost one we hear from every company, we have intellectual property that we are trying to control, Mm -hmm. that we need to know isn't leaking, that we need to work with partners and ecosystem players and customers. And every time we hit the button to send data to somebody, we know we're losing control of it, right? So right off the bat, the initial use case of we now know we can control all of our intellectual property and our sensitive data. And if we send it out, let's say you and I, are sharing data. You and I have a business deal together, Junko, yep. and uh, and then you say two weeks later, you say, "I don't want to do business with Elliot. I've decided not to do this business deal." Yep. And you want your data back. Yep. Before you had no way to do that. Now you hit a button, and all of your data is revoked from me, right? And we have the ability to do that down to a geolocation uh, and, and capability, down to a device capability, down to identity capability. So. You now have the ability to say, if I share my data, I know I still control it, mm-hmm. and I can get, I can revoke access to it at any time, no matter how far it's gone. This also allows us the other features of it when we talk about data exfiltration and bad actors 
stealing data. The fact that the data all has geolocation capability too means that if someone steals data from a facility Mm -hmm. or from an authorized workspace, that data is going to control itself and say, I'm sorry, I was never supposed to leave this office or these sets of offices. So data exfiltration now is another feature that we control so that if a a bad actor takes data, Uh if it's not supposed to be there, it will not open up for them. It's aware of where it's at. So what happens though? I mean, you just gave an example that you and I decided to do business together and a few weeks later I decided I changed my mind. What if you already copied my data somewhere else? How can I reach into your storage to erase that? So the the, the point is we're not reaching into the storage site <laughs> okay. to erase that. That's yeah. the key, that's one of the key points. The data is doing this upon access attempt. So let's say ah. you take my data and you yep. store it on a USB stick and then you put yep. it in your drawer for two years, okay? Then you go to a foreign nation oh. and you plug it in. Upon yes. that access attempt, access point. Ah, that's- yes, the data the data will wake up and say, I want, I know, I want to know who you are, where I am, what device this is, what network. I wasn't supposed to be it's here. here. Oh. I'm not going to open up. So this is a pawn access attempt every time someone tries to access the data. So it doesn't matter if I stored it somewhere else. I'm not reaching into your storage. It's the data controlling itself. And that's the key issue. Now, the uh, what sort of industries, can you give me examples of the uh, customers in different industries that are looking at this? Absolutely. So um, we're already working with uh, folks in gaming and hospitality. In the mm. hotel business, that's obviously been a hotbed for data mm. theft and data loss. So we are at, we're working with folks there, working yep. with manufacturing. Uh, we're working with financial services. Yep. Um, we're we're um, also working with uh, a couple of energy folks. And what we're doing is we're keeping the, we were we're keeping this in very much an early adopter mode, so that we can understand how these different companies wanted to see the policy control sets for data, figure out the common denominators of how, when I see across those verticals, what are the common protection feature sets they all wanted to see so we could build it into the core platform, right? This is a platform play. It's also designed for other developers and other uh, companies to write um, their own applications and platforms to this API set. So. If I'm a, is, if, let's say I'm a company, we also working with legal as an example in healthcare. Yeah. Um, and if I'm a legal entity and I have a specific kind of application yeah. that I want to do for legal purposes, they can write or a third party can write an application specifically for legal or for healthcare specifically for HIPAA. We've enabled ah. the ability to make all Good. data intelligent. How you want to do those policies and controls? We wanted to get the com- most common ones into the platform. Yep. And then that was obviously geolocation, identity, device, networking, um, um, uh, uh, being able to pull the device it's on for different means and controls. Yep. Beyond that, the sky's the limit about how you want to make what you want to think <laughs> about intelligence. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was, uh, it was fun talking to you and good luck. Oh, thank you so much. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. That's some real Mission Impossible stuff right there. If Kiavi's idea works, that could be a legitimate game changer. For more details, 
on our podcast webpage at eetimes.com. We have a link to the article that Junko and our CloudWatch columnist Anne Thrift co-wrote on the company and its technology. Over the last 40 or 50 years, the United States has been eager to have its manufacturing base shift to other countries where the entire process would be cheaper. One of the vulnerabilities of that strategy was exposed during the still ongoing trade war with China. The Trump administration discovered it had significantly less negotiating leverage than it realized with a country that had become an essential link in the global supply chain for so very many important products that are designed, bought, and sold in the U.S. Those vulnerabilities became even more obvious with the pandemic. The U.S. could not buy enough of many necessities because they were in short supply. The U.S. also rediscovered that it takes a lot of time to retool existing manufacturing facilities and even more time to spin up new factories, time that no one has in an emergency like the one we're experiencing now. President Trump used to tweet relatively often about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. More recently, Democratic Senator Cory Booker updated a bill he originally proposed in 2015 to encourage more production startups in the U.S. Dan Bresnitz, who holds the Monk Chair of Innovation Studies at the University of Toronto, is an authority on what it takes for countries to reestablish and maintain a production base. I and my fellow editor, George Leopold, held a video conference with Bresnitz recently to ask him what it would take for a country to promote a thriving production economy today. We first asked him about examples of countries that have done it. So first, there have been, uh, uh, in some countries, including the United States, talked about it before. Uh, some countries actually didn't talk, just did uh, the most famous one is Germany in terms of rich, highly developed economies, but also the, all the Scandinavian economies are actually doing quite a lot of production. And of course, uh, the greater China region. And this was done mainly under Obama presidency. And it was done, however, uh, for very specific um Areas. Um, so a lot of emphasis was given in many countries, but especially in the US, and what we call advanced manufacturing, which include free additive um, manufacturing or 3D printing, but include all ev everything else with advanced manufacturing. And there were many reasons, uh, mostly economic and the realization that we're actually losing our and now I'm talking about the U.S., losing our advantage in innovation because we no longer know how to make things. And at some point when you don't know how to make things, you also lose the ability to innovate. Um, Five-generation mobile telephony or telecommunication is, I think, the latest uh, very dramatic uh, example of this where we realized that this is becoming critical for our security and well-being. And yet, even if we will force Huawei out of the United States or all of North America, I am not sure whether we can produce anything in the United States. And even if the names will be European, like Ericsson and Nokia, it is not clear that it will not be manufactured mostly in the greater China region. 
not only because we don't have production, but as we now know from the very tragic <laughs> or sad attempts of Apple together with Intel and other American companies to produce just one five-generation phone, forget about base station and infrastructure, they have been failing for 24 months at least. So you seemed uh, somewhat skeptical uh, that this can be easily done. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we have examples of Germany, Scandinavia, greater China area. Um, and you know, I, I'm assuming that those are positive examples. These are examples of, of efforts to build a a production base. Um, what are the basic requirements, uh, for a successful program? Um, I imagine they include not only just factories and other, you know, production facilities, but, um, uh, having uh, human capital, um, a supportive financial system, um, you know, an educational system. Are, are, are these the, the elements required? So those are the elements required, but I think we should stop for a moment and view this uh, corona or COVID-19 crisis as uh, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what this COVID and, and why we are even talking about it is that this crisis have shown us that um, if you know the fable of a frog that was put in a pot of water mm -hmm. and then slowly, <laughs> slowly, slowly the water were boiled and the frog doesn't understand them and end up being dead and well cooked. That's exactly <laughs> what happened to the American economy. And what happened with COVID now is suddenly we realize that we find it difficult to produce basic critical necessities uh, from swabs, testing, ventilators, masks, pharmaceutical, telecommunication equipment. Just go on and try to uh, great, create an American laptop by ordering from Dell and HP and just look at the number of days it will take them because there is no such thing as American produced laptop, and I'm not talking about anything more sophisticated. Mm. Uh, and even toilet paper, just moving the production from commercial toilet paper to home toilet paper proved to be more than what uh, we managed to do. Um, so, Do you have enough toilet paper in Canada? Uh, we have enough toilet paper in Canada, but very similar to the U.S., uh, turns out that the moving from the production of those huge toilet papers for commercial use to uh, home packaging uh, is much more complicated than what you would expect. Um, so, and that I think is the moment when we suddenly realize that we are being the, the frog which is likely been cooking. Mm. And that's a moment in which we can change it. But we already have been cooking for a very long time. So right now, we are missing demand. So it's not enough that uh, you put a production facility. Somebody has to buy whatever comes from that production facilities and has to be stable, not just one-time demand. Otherwise, no sane person will invest in the production facility 
no other sane person will ever learn how to operate those machines, um, and the rest goes. This is getting even worse because we have hollow up the whole supplier and sub-supplier networks. So if you want mm. to now uh, produce anything um, with electronics and electric engineering from laptop to mobile telephony to even this very simple um, speaker that I'm talking to, um, you're talking about sometimes thousands of subcomponents. Um, right. We don't even produce as Apple trying to move to Texas. In some places in the United States, we don't even produce screws. Right. So in order for all of that to come to happen, it's a massive coordination effort. Okay. We, meaning the business of people who make this decision about investments, uh, which can be both the managers that create those production and the people acquiring the skills and looking for work and building their future and the future of families upon that needs to know that there is a demand and that demand is there to stay for a long period of time. Long period of time is not 50 years, but it is several years. Because if you invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to a few billions of dollars in a production facility, you need five years or more to actually recoup any profits from it. And an assurance that you're going to get um, a return on your investment. Exactly. And an ins- which also include, as I said, skills. Okay? Yes. Then not only we don't have a sub-supplier networks, but we no longer have enough of the people that work on the shop floor and know how to be efficient in that. And we don't even have a right engineer. So production engineers, tooling engineers, all those engineers. Um are not in one comfortable, convenient place in the United States where I can just boom, 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 start to plant factories and production facilities and boom, everything will flourish. So we should not accept even our biggest and most powerful corporation to be able to do it by themselves. Uh, And we should not expect workers and other human beings to actually develop those skills. And those skills, as I said, is from the shop floor to actually management skills of how to produce and how to build production instead of have to offshore and manage global supply chain. It's pretty easy to, to identify the problems, but what are the solutions? And one of the things you've talked about is regional production hubs, manufacturing hubs, uh, for example, in North America and so forth. And we're starting to uh, get some response to some of the stories we've been writing that where that's happening, that there's been some insuring. Could you describe for us, you know, how that might work, what it would look like, and whether it's sustainable? Sure. So let's first talk about demand. I think uh, one of the things we can easily do, uh, even with pending legislation, is to create a minimal stable level of demands. Um very, uh, one of the things that I would do is put it into made in America procurement. And the made in America procurement shouldn't be just for defense and medical. It should be for anything uh, that is bought by government on the local, state, and federal level uh, to a certain percentage, right? Of course, not everything, but to a certain percentage. And it can also be done by organizations that get government money 
and authorize it. So for example, Medicaid. The second thing that I will do is to enforce transparency about what does it mean to be made in America. So a few days ago, I went and bought DeWalt drill to fix things mm -hmm. in the house. On it, it says, and on the website, proudly American. But when you open the drill, you see on the drill, made in China. So I need to know, and people <laughs> need to know, exactly. Sort of funny, yes. but in a tragic way. Right. I need to know what does it mean to be made in America. And the way, the same way that we now have nutrition values, we can have values of where and how much of those components were so sorry, how much of those components were sourced where, where it was assembled and all the rest. And that can also create market demand from consumers because of things from quality control to things that are more morally so organic, locally made, fair trade, all the rest. But if you don't know, how are you going to decide whether to pay more or less for things? So that can be easily fixable. The second thing about demand that can be easily fixable, but we still have quite a lot of demand in the United States, but it is isolated and fragmented. So government, and here it can also be a lot of state or regional government, can very easily create a statistic clearinghouse or, or the same way they do for marketing when they try to uh, show off the region to the world for foreign direct investment of the demand that they have and which companies want what. So people, meaning investors and managers, can start to make decisions based on this demand, which they don't, don't know, and they can tap to it. Um, the second things that those governments can do, which is, by the way, exactly what the most successful local governments in China have been doing. And Michael Merferi and I have several papers and works on it. Uh, Dongguan and Shenzhen and the whole Peruvian Delta have been doing it. Uh, areas figure out which products um, they want or can be produced around them. And then they map up the whole supply networks for that product. And if they see significant gaps, they try to fix those gaps, either by moving foreign companies in or by creating local companies or uh, asking or helping local entrepreneur to um, supply those gaps uh, to mm -hmm. the level uh, and I'm sure, George, you have seen it as well, that there's many industries in China now, highly innovative, that are now moving toward the Shenzhen and Dongguan area because they have a complete supply network uh, within 90 or even just, let's call it, four hours travel. So if they need to spike demand, lower demand, they suddenly realize that they're missing skills they can solve it within a day. Well, if they stayed in Beijing, for example, they'll have to move everything out of Shenzhen. Right. And our listeners right. should know that uh, Dan uh, wrote about all of this in, a, I think, a landmark work called Run of the Red Queen that came out a few years ago that really gave uh, people a sense of uh, how, the, how the Chinese government was doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, I recommend it to, to our listeners 
Uh, Dan, I did get uh, one response to some of the stories we've been writing from a manufacturer in the New York area. He says, we're already seeing the reshoring and diversification efforts of domestic manufacturing here at his company. Record sourcing activity as industry has begun to pivot towards U.S. industrial resurgence. And then he advises us to keep up the good reporting. So there's one nice little uh, data point. I guess it's, you know, it's isolated, it's regional, but... um, you know, we, we have some naysayers who don't think this, this can happen, but, you know, unless you act, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, and so people are thinking about it. Yeah, so I think it can happen. What I don't want to see is what happened after um, the last medical care, uh, where um, there's one producer of, of masks, actually, in the United States. And in the mm-hmm. last big medical scares, he spiked production. And because back then, everybody wanted to buy American. As soon as this passed, all the hospitals and all the medical facilities went back immediately to the cheapest, uh, low-cost producer. And he had to fire a lot of people. Uh, And that's why I said it is key to change the base level, the benchmark demand levels in the United States for United States components and products, not just final products. Again, components, subsystem, everything else. And this can be done by changing procurement rules and can be changed by creating a transparency of where and from whom and when did you, um, how do you produce your whole products? That's why I said it should be about production, not just manufacturing. Uh, The other thing which we should change are a whole set of financial uh, incentives and managerial incentives. Right now, um, we are using metrics to judge whether companies are successful or not, which are not only just short term, but have metrics like return on assets. that incentivize managers and investors to offshore and get out of a balance sheet everything which is a capital equipment assets because that's the easiest way to increase return on assets. You just get rid of assets. We also, <laughs> yeah, we, we also constantly look at um, almost current stock price. And mm-hmm. when you do that, the easiest way to fix uh, stock price is do financial engineering from stock buybacks to dividend to uh, more interesting financial engineering, not to think about five years cycle of uh, investment in capital equipment. So I don't uh, see anything wrong in what managers um, do until, of course, it's so negligible that people die without naming company's name. Because Mm -hmm. that's the laws on regulations that we put in place and we told those managers and investors, this is what you should do. And and we even take them to court when they don't do it. So unless we change the financial and managerial incentives, we should not expect any change in corporate behavior. So that's one. The second, we no longer... And together with this spike in demand and the creation of those networks, 
we need to figure out how to create financial institutions, vehicle organizations, whatever you want to call them, that reacquire the skills of making money out of giving capital, either in equity or in debt loans, to production facilities, factories, uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, we don't have them anymore. We have a lot of right. yeah. We have a lot of people who know how to do equity, high-risk equity in venture capital, and we have a lot of people who know how to make or lose money out of mortgages and student loans. We almost have no people who have deep knowledge of their industry, especially regional industry, and figuring out what are the needs and how to structure loans and financial um, tools for those companies so they can scale up, grow, and succeed. So, so what I'm hearing is that uh, there's a, uh, this is a massive project with many moving parts that's going to require some coordination. Uh, is that, uh, should we be skeptical or should we hold out hope that it's actually possible in the United States and North America? Let's be, first, the answer is very easy. It is possible. And we have done much, I mean, we, we have conquered obstacles as a society which are much more, were much more significant and severe than this one. So with the American or North America, uh, people can do that? Of course they can. Uh, do we have the leadership to make that happen? I think we still have. The question is whether it will do it. Um, mm. The one thing that I think all of us will have to remember is that if we don't do that, we will become even more vulnerable to the next crisis. And the next crisis is just around the corner. We frogs should pay more attention to the temperature of the water. We frogs should understand that we are now badly burned, go out of the pot, look at how badly burned we are, and decide that enough is enough, and let's make sure we stay healthy. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. George's article on efforts to restore U.S. production capabilities is on our website at eetimes.com. It's called Pandemic Renews Calls to Revive U.S. Manufacturing. And, of course, there's a handy-dandy link on the podcast page that will get you there. And now it's time for one of our forays into the history of technology, celebrating anniversaries of great notable events. Speaking of dead frogs, most of our listeners are likely acquainted with the phenomenon of galvanization. The derivation of the word, of course, comes from the name of the scientists who first detected the response, Luigi Galvani and his wife Lucia. Galvani, Lucia, and a lab assistant were working in their lab one day sometime in the mid-1780s when they noted a spark of static electricity leaping from a scalpel to a dead frog they'd been working on, causing the frog's leg to twitch. He had discovered what he called animal electricity. Galvani was a lecturer at the University of Bologna and became noted as a surgeon and accoucheur. I have never even seen the word 
Akushur before this week, and who knows if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's the word for a male midwife. He remained a lecturer at the University of Bologna until April 20th, 1798, when he was compelled to resign because he would not swear the oath of the Cisalpine Republic. Which begs the question, what was the Cisalpine Republic? Funny you should ask. So anyway, back in 1797, Napoleon Bonaparte won his first battle as a general, beating the Austrians at the Battle of Lodi in Italy. In the aftermath, France carved a chunk out of northern Italy and set it up as a separate political entity called the Cisalpine Republic. Of course, citizens had to take an oath, and of course, Galvani refused to do it on principle, and so he lost his job at the university. He died the following December. The Cisalpine Republic, by the way, lasted for only five years. It was dissolved in 1803. Galvani's experiments with what he called animal electricity remained a topic of current conversation for decades. (laughs) Get it? Current conversation? In fact, they inspired Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley to write Frankenstein, which she finished writing at right about this time of the year, at the end of April or early May, 203 years ago. So that's your weekly briefing for the week ending April 24th. As many of our listeners know, E.E. Times was founded in 1972 to provide in-depth analysis on the industry and offer a fresh, thoughtful take on key issues by seasoned journalists covering the space. Next week, we're pleased to introduce our latest editorial product, the E.E. Times Weekend Edition. Hearkening to the weekend editions of the publications of record in general news and current affairs media, the E.E. Times Weekend Edition aims to bring you the same hard-hitting analysis and shoe-leather reporting you're used to in our main publication, but also feature new voices from our sister publications at AspenCore, photos, images, and illustrations that tell the story via different medium, along with some extra dip-in elements to give you inspiration and enjoyment as you sit down for that morning cup of coffee on the weekend. We're excited about this latest investment in our editorial slate. Sally Ward-Foxton, who will be helming the weekend edition, will join us on the show next week to tell us more. That's all for now. The weekly briefing is available on all your favorite podcast apps, but if you get there via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to, including video. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.